Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. This will be number three in our John's Letter series. I want to put the focus on today on practicing righteousness because in these next set of passages we're going to look at, you get the you, you have to understand that we're talking about a present tense active Christianity. A lot of language gets used that sounds past tense or sounds like these definitive statements which is why we have to go in and study the original language. You know, so the the class that we're doing on Wednesdays about Bible study, looking at original language resources, understanding how to go into tenses. I'm going to get kind of technical today on one particular verse, and I'm doing it on purpose. It's not that the Bible is flawed, but it wasn't written in English. You know, Jesus spoke Aramaic. They lived under Roman rule, which spoke and wrote everything in Greek. So that's what we have. Most of our original New Testament texts are Greek, and the old are Hebrew, and so we have to pull from that. You know, I always laugh at the King James-only people because it's like, you realize that Jesus didn't speak King James, right? And that neither did Caesar, so therefore, anyway, insert laugh. <laughs> but it's like, you, go, you have to go to the original language on some levels. Now, not everybody wants to get technical, and that's fine. That's why we have the body. That's why people like me get to do what I love to do and go into the detail. And, and as you know, we don't always do that, but there's a lot of meat there that we can look at. And so when you're approaching the Bible, and so what, you know, if you're visiting today or if you're new, you're watching online for the first time, what we're doing is we're actually working through the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're only about halfway through chapter 2 of 1st John in our third sermon. Uh, so maybe I've got two more after this one. But, uh, you know, I'm going slow intentionally. And, and I, what I'm realizing is I can't stop on everything and expound on every aspect. So there's a couple of things. that I, There's really one specific passage I want to camp out on today, and, and we'll get there. But I, but I wanted to just draw the point that when you're approaching a Bible or, or a letter or a particular book of the Bible, and we did this two weeks ago. We watched the Bible Project video on... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's about a 10-minute video. The link is in our Facebook group, or you can go to BibleProject.com and watch it if you want to go back and get caught up on this. But it's a good idea to go to a particular letter, understand some history, who is he speaking to, what are the main concepts that he's addressing, what's the main point that he's trying to say, listen, you know, so it's audience, pay, pay attention. Is this, prof- is this prophetic? Is it poetic? Is it doctrinal? You know, what, what are, what's the writing style? There's, there's a lot of detail that people go to school for years and years and years to figure out all this complex way to approach the Bible. And it's kind of like if you pick up a letter and you read it, you're like, is this to me or is this to somebody else? And there may be some universal truths that somebody wrote a letter to somebody else that can apply to you, but that's the same way you have to approach Scripture, right? Not everything in there was written to you, but there is a lot in there that can be applied to you. So that's what we're doing is we're working through 1 John. And, you know, one of the biggest things that, gets, that 1 John gets used for, and I went into this a little bit last week and on Wednesday, and the live stream is up 
from Wednesday. But this book oftentimes gets used by legalistic Christians to cause others to question their salvation. So like, that goes like this. You're a Christian now, therefore you shouldn't sin. And if you're continuing in sin, then maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not saved. Now some extreme sects, and I'll call them sects, sect, sect, S-E-C-T, I'll spell it, I'll spell it. Sects. Uh, go into the idea that, well, maybe God didn't actually save you, and maybe you're not even one of the ones that can be saved, right? Like there is a theology that people have, a reform systematic theology that says not everybody even is going to have the opportunity to be saved. I think that's disgusting and a slap in the face of the finished work of Jesus, but, you know, that's what I think about that. So, but it is used to say Look at yourself, and if you're sinning, maybe you're not saved. You know, you should be doing better by now. Some of y'all been Christians for a long time. Some of y'all are still struggling with the same kinds of sins repetitively. You do pretty good, and then it creeps back in. And what that does is, if you're, and, and it's out of a place of sincerity, sincerity that people look at themselves and, look, and evaluate their behavior and say, well, I really should be doing better by now. And then maybe you entertain the enemy. The enemy might be speaking, well, maybe you never really got saved in the first place. You should come on down here this week and rededicate and get saved again and born again, again, again. You know, there are people that get born again every week in some churches. It's like, no, don't, don't affirm who you are in Christ and the finished work on your behalf and yes, of course, desire to develop a, a lifestyle of holiness and righteousness, living worthy of the salvation that you've been given, not trampling it underfoot. Right. But don't look at your behavior to determine whether or not you're saved. Look at your behavior to determine whether or not you are allowing the Spirit of God to continue to transform you, but not all the way, you don't back it all the way up into your salvation. And, I, and I, I say that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking in a circle there, repetitive. But it's interesting because you look here at first, and, and I'm, I'm going to skip to chapter 5. So if you'll, 1 John 5, 13, and I'll give you a second to find that. You can go and put it up when you get there. 1 John 5, 13. I wanted to start with this one today in the middle of this series that we're looking at. Because when you're approaching a particular book, you let the author, you let the book speak for itself. You let the letter speak for itself. You let the author speak for itself. So in 1 John 5.13, he tells us one of the reasons why he's writing the letter. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Raise your hand if you believe in the name of Jesus. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So like he wrote this letter so that you would know that you're saved. And then it gets used to make you question your salvation. Isn't that bizarre? It's like, no. So John, who wrote the letter, if you read his letter, wants you to come to the conclusion, Phew, at least I'm saved. Now, there's a high standard for how you conduct yourself and live, and he addresses that. He addresses walking in the light or walking in love. He addresses sin, and he addresses you being sure in your salvation. That's ultimately what he's trying to cover here. So you can jump back over to uh, 2.9 now, and we'll pick back up. So when you're approaching the Word, 
Let it speak for itself. Why did he write this letter? So that you'd know that you're saved. Amen? And so that you would continue believing on Jesus because obviously who he was speaking to, remember the video talked about how there were uh, false teachers and deceivers coming into the church at the time and basically they'd walked away from the faith. And this was the same warning in Hebrews where it talks about there is no more sacrifice for sin. There were people leaving the faith because of persecution, going back under the Levitical priesthood law and picking up their goats and doves and going back down to the altar to offer sacrifice for sin after they had already recognized Jesus was their sin offering. Like, it's like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to honor Jesus. Wait a minute, I don't like this persecution thing. Let me take my goat down to the priest, and I prefer the blood of this goat rather than the blood of Jesus. That's the warning in Hebrews, to step away from the faith and go back under sacrifices for sin other than Jesus. That's the sin that he's talking about. Not just, well, if you happen to continue in sin once you're saved, then maybe you're going to go to hell. That's, that's just not in context what he's talking about. So I know I'm kind of throwing a lot at you there. So let's go back in 1 John 2, 9. This is where we left off last week. And I'm going to go kind of quickly through uh, this, the rest of this chapter and get to where we're going in chapter 3. So, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So remember back over in chapter 1, he's talking about walking in the light. And what is walking in the light? It's walking in love. And so he's addressing issues in the church saying, you guys aren't really doing a very good job of loving each other. How, how can you say that you represent God? How can you say that you're Christians if you don't value loving one another? Because that was the very context that Jesus gave them from the beginning. It's Jesus' commandments. Love one another. Love God, love one another. Don't you realize that God in the flesh came here and what he admonishes to you is that you walk in light and love toward one another? Why, why, why are you acting like this? You say you're Christians. Why are you acting like this? Now that gets interpreted, maybe you're not saved. No, he's just calling them hypocrites, essentially. Well, you say this, but you're doing this. How do you say that you're following Jesus and you hate your brother? Are you kidding me? What does that look like today? You're going to vote for Biden? You're going to vote for Trump? What? You are the enemy. Instantly. I have conservative friends that think if you vote for Biden, you're not saved. That you are demonic. It, you know. Y'all good? Okay, let's keep going here. <clears throat> that, so he's talking, he's, he's coming at them pretty hard about how they're treating one another. Verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light. That's like the very definition. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. And I went through this a little bit in, week, in the first week. but So when you have love toward your fellow brother in Christ, brother and sister in Christ, it conditions your heart in such a way where you're going to steward and tend that holiness and righteousness that you've been given, and it's not, there's not a stumbling block within you. If you are holding hatred in your heart towards your fellow brother or sister in Christ, what that's going to do is rearrange your furniture in the dark, and you're going to walk around bumping into things. In your heart, when you're holding hate towards your fellow brother and sister in Christ, let's say it this way, 
towards your cousin, towards your father, towards your children, towards your school teacher, toward that person that legitimately committed an injustice in your life, created a trauma, now they're following Jesus. You're having hate toward that person. It's like turning the lights off in your heart. Your, your heart's trying to see God. Your heart's trying to follow God, but you're holding hate in there. It puts a veil over that. It's like turning the lights off in there. And you're going to start bumping into things. That's what it's talking about. Don't, don't allow any opportunity for stumbling in your own heart to follow Jesus. In other words, get rid of the hate. And it's so important because it's the strategy, strategy that Jesus gave us. Love one another. Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray that they are one as we are one so that the world would know that you sent me. How are we one in our love toward one another? The, pro the progression is this. We lo we, God loved us. We say, oh, that's pretty good. I'm going to love you back. Then we, you recognize, oh, you're in God too. I'm going to love you. And then as we love each other, the world's like, what are they doing over there? Boy, they must follow Jesus. Look how they love each other. And then we turn to the Lord and we say, that's right. Don't you want some of this too? And then they, they come in and they believe that Jesus was sent for them too. Did you follow me on that? I mean, it, we owe it to the world to love one another. And how dare you say you're following Jesus if you're not loving your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Now, that doesn't mean you're a doormat and you allow the trauma and the abuse to continue. You put boundaries in place, but you don't hold it against them. You forgive and you move on. You might remove yourself from that relationship permanently, but you don't harbor hate toward them. He who hates his brother, uh, verse 11, he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. Try that. Go home, turn all the lights off. You get the point. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Verse 12, I write to you. Now, he kind of gets a little poetic here. These are universal truths to be applied, a lot like the Beatitudes. Blessed be, blessed, you know, blessed is, blessed is. All of these apply to every person in this grouping here but he breaks it down specifically to make his point. It's a, it's a, you know, just a, it's a literary tool. So I, I'll show you what I mean. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, if your sins are forgiven, can you lose your salvation by continuing in sin? Now, if you give up the faith, maybe you can give that salvation back. I don't know. There seems to be warning to continue in faith. But the fact that you're not living godly, we saw in 2 Peter, is because you have forgotten that you're forgiven. So he's affirming to them. You know, and so when you really look at he wants you to know that you're saved, this is a big issue here. Your sins are forgiven. Say, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. for what I'm going to do next week. Now, does that make you want to go intentionally sin? I hope not. Time to grow up if you do. Verse 13, I write you fathers... Now, does that only apply to little children? You old folks in here, does that apply to you too? Everybody look down. I'm not old. Verse 13, I write to you fathers. Does this apply to the mothers too? Because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, there's a lot in this, and I'm just, I'm just not going to take the time to go into this. I write you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Did you know that? Did you know that you have overcome the wicked one? Amen. That's a big one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Now, that's important because he's about to say in another verse, if you, continue in, if you continue in sin, you have not known 
the Father. But he's affirming to them here, you have known the Father. It's written, it's done. I'm acknowledging you have known the Father. If you believe in Jesus, if you've accepted him, if you know that your sins are forgiven in him, you have known the Father. You have experienced the Father. And remember that when we get a little bit further. So past tense, you have met, you've, you've met him. But this word known is an ongoing experiential knowledge. You know him. Uh, it's not just that you met him once, but you have an re ongoing relationship with him. That's what he's talking about. So, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you love things in the world, should that cause you to question your salvation? No, because you've known him and you're forgiven. What we're going to see is contextually in the tenses, he's talking about an ongoing thing. So if you're, it's kind of like you can only have one thing in your heart at a time. You can only have one thought in your mind at a time. Whichever one you're entertaining, that's what you're loving in that moment. He's talking about an active present tense experience of are you seeking things in the world? Or are you seeking things of God? And we go back and forth all the time. And James warns about that, being double-minded. What he's talking about here is double-mindedness. And see, it's kind of why you have to know the Word, because you can watch the Holy Spirit put things together for you so that you get more out of it than just a... English version of what's being said here. This will make more sense in just a minute. Uh, for all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not, of, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, in the last hour, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. But I feel like I read this last week. Did I? Okay. Let me see. Oh, yeah, because we went all the way down to know, you know all things. Let me skip down just a little bit here. We'll skip down to verse 24. This is a different approach than I normally take going through verse by verse like this. So, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. In what you heard from the beginning abides in you. You also abide in the Son and in the Father. You know, and, and it's like, I, to me, I think he's affirming, hold on to that simple gospel. People get bored with their Christianity. People get bored affirming the foundation and the basics. People are like, well, I want to learn something new. And there's plenty to learn. Trust me, there's plenty to learn. But people get bored with the foundation and start wanting to go, let me have these visions and these dreams or this. Or just like, I know that. I had one person tell me, he's like, yeah. I go around to different churches, and once I feel like I've gotten everything I can out of that church, I go to another church. Well, that's a pretty selfish way to pick a church, everybody, but, you know, do your thing. I think you might should go to a church because you're fed there, and God calls you there, and you connect with the people, and you serve through that community. That might be a better opportunity and reason. But. So, verse 25, and this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. I'm rushing because I want to make sure I get to this one part today. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Say, I am anointed. I'm anointed. 
and it doesn't leave. It abides in me. See, you don't need another anointing. You don't need somebody else's impartation. You don't need, and this is only specific to certain circles, but you don't need to go to somebody else, get them to lay hands on you and give you something that you don't already have in Christ. There is one anointing, that is Christ, and that anointing abides in you. Christ in you is the only anointing available under the new covenant, and it's the only one that you need because it's everything. But as the same anointing teaches you, uh, let's see, uh, but, the, but the anointing you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you. I, I love that. You know, you don't need me. You don't need some man or woman teaching you in your life. But what we do is we value what God's doing through other people and we gather to participate and minister to one another. But you don't need to find the proper authoritative apostle to submit yourself under to them for then you to be okay in the kingdom of God. Because that's a, that's a mindset that's out there. Well, see, God wants you to be submitted to, man, to a spiritual authority. Who's your spiritual authority? Who's your spiritual covering? People ask us that question. Uh, Jesus? You, you think it should be you? Oh, I get you think it should be you. I understand. You think I should submit to the Spirit of God in you because you're over me. Uh -uh. And don't let anybody tell you that. Uh, so, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, let me ask you that. Imagine this for just a moment. Imagine that Jesus appears before you. Like, imagine that he appeared before you. This is what it's talking about. When he appears... Let's just kind of take out when that happens because you're going to be basically the same person at that time. If Jesus were to appear right in front of you, would you be ashamed? Would you be afraid? Let me ask you this. When you're at your darkest moment, when you like yourself the least and he appeared in front of you, would you be ashamed? I don't know. I don't know about that one. Think about it. And I, I, I very rarely want you to focus on your failure and your sin, but just think about how big of a failure you are sometimes. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, here's Jesus standing in front of you. <laughs> even in that moment, even in that moment, he will affirm to you who you are. Is he condoning that behavior? Absolutely not. Is he condoning that attitude or anger or whatever it might be that you struggle with? Absolutely not. He died for it. That's what he would do if he appeared in front of you and you're failing in that moment. That's what he would say. Oh, why don't you let me take that? Let me take that for you. You don't have to. You don't, that's not who you are. You can let go of that. That's what it would be like if he appeared in front of you. Because that's what he did when he appeared in front of other people caught in sin when he was on this planet. Didn't he? Of course he then said, I don't condemn you. Because I am going to be condemned for you. Now, go and sin no more. There, there's power in freedom. Amen. Holiness and righteousness is best stewarded in an environment of freedom. The strength of sin is the law. The strength of righteousness is grace. When you know that you're free, and then he gives you that power in that moment, 
don't ever be ashamed. Now, to the immature, that could be taken to, well, bless God, I can just continue in this sin. I had people tell me, you know, well, I'm not going to go there. Let's keep going. <clears throat> 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, this idea practices is the tense context that he's going to stick with as he goes through. I kind of sounded Italian, but he's going to stick with is the way it goes. <laughs> practices, all right? So think about practice, right? How many of you played sports in the past or even currently play sports or played an instrument or did something where you had to practice? What's the mindset of practice? You schedule it, right? You get everything you need in place for it. You get your rides, you get your uniform, whatever it might be. You read about it, you think about it. You're, you're, you're steering your life and your focus and your actions and your resources intentionally toward practicing. That's the context of what he's talking about here. Practicing righteousness and practicing sin. Now, if you're scheduling your sin, come talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Most people slip. That's not practicing sin. A doctor practices medicine. Did he just wake up one day and fall into his office and cut somebody open and take an organ out? I hope not. That's the context of what we're going into. All right, so let's jump to chapter 3. Now, I'm not trying to give you an excuse to sin. And I know that you know that. But somebody watching online is going to comment on this YouTube channel. Just hold your comment. Hear me out. <clears throat> Behold what manner of love has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You know, like you could just take and meditate on that. Like the love that has been bestowed upon us. Yeah. Those of you that have adopted children or are considering adoption, you have a choice. Like, your kids that you have biologically, you didn't really choose those kids. You know what I'm saying? But if you adopt it, you have a choice. You look. You get to know. You read about. You choose. God did that for us. God knew what he was getting when he got us, and he chose us. Didn't he? The love that was bestowed upon us that we now get to be called God's children. We weren't born of our own nature and genetics of God we were adopted into his family by his spirit. Amen? That's the love that he bestowed upon us. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So again, he's comforting and he's affirming the foundation one more time. Beloved, now, say now, we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Man, there's so much in that. There just really is so much in that. It's talking about being continually conformed to the image of Christ in this earth, submitting ourselves to a repentant lifestyle of mind renewal to experience transformation, not transformation into you're a dirty sinner, now you're a little bit cleaner of a sinner, now you're just still kind of a regular old mundane sinner, now you're kind of getting a little bit more holy. Boy, you're really holy now. That's not the progress. That's like you were dead in sin. God said, cleaned you up. Put, you, put himself in you, gave you a new heart, boom! You went from dead to life. 
That's your righteousness now in him, before him, right? That's the, that's the two states of existence, one or the other. It's not a progression. So uh, now we are children, and it has not yet been revealed. So this not yet been revealed is not when you get better at being a Christian. It might be when you become more convinced of what he's done in you already, and you outwardly live more closely to that identity. I think it could be talking about that. And even in his coming at the end, because he does say, for we shall see him as he is. So it says, um, uh, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's a principle that you can take. you got an area of your life that you don't like. You can identify that. Then you look at Jesus and how he behaved in that area of his life. You can go through a meditative, repentant process to recognize that aspect of who Jesus is is also in me. I am being conformed into the image of Christ. I have his character in me because I have his spirit in me. Now, that is not just a faith statement. That is a recognition of what he's done in me, and I'm going to wash my mind and set my heart on him to display the character that he's put within me. That's the process there. Um, so it's now and future, and, and probably some that we don't even know what, what he's talking about there. For we shall see. So the principle is this. We become more like him when we see him as he is. That's not just future. That's even in this moment. You want to be more like Jesus? See him how he is in that area and how he sees you. There's just something to that planting the word within you and beholding him. You are changed into that image as you behold him. That's why worship is so powerful because you behold him in those moments and you're just changed. And then you look around, oh, wow, I'm different. I'm a different person. Uh, verse 3, and, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the purification process is as you behold him, not you've done some act to become pure. You are pure in him in spirit, and as you behold him, that purity affects the rest of your being. That's that transfer, transformative process. So we're, we're almost there, going a little bit long, but verse 4, we got like three more verses. Whoever, so remember, we're talking about practicing righteousness and practicing sin. We're talking about scheduling it. We're talking about preparing, arranging our lives to accomplish the thing, right? So whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Now verse 6 is where we're going. And this, this scares the daylights out of some people if you don't really understand what he's saying here. The context, as you can see, is present tense active practicing. Verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. This doesn't say whoever was born again once does not sin. Abiding, let me just read the whole thing. So whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins neither seen him nor know him. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, a weapon of the legalist to say, if you sin, are you born again? Yeah. Do you sin? Sometimes. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe you've never met him. Maybe you're not saved. 
And I want to ask that person, well, did you sin? Well, yeah. Well, maybe you're not saved. Well, maybe not. They don't even know. People, don't, you know. people that think that way don't even know. Watch this. This is technical. But in the tense, so there are seven different tenses in the Greek. We have past, present, future. Past means it was back there, it happened, it's over, it's done with. Just leave it in the past. They have past meaning it happened in the past and it's over. It happened in the past, but it will reoccur in the future. Or it happened in the past and it's still echoing now. It's still effective now. So it, it, it's almost like the past was the point of origin for it to continue. Does that make sense? Like, like you got married in the past, but are you not married anymore because it's the next day? No. So that's the kind of tense that we're talking about here in this. That it, so let me, let me, we're going to go into this. So when you look at the tenses, this is the... Uh, Perfect, let's see, sorry. I'm trying to make sure I get the right part here. I think I deleted it. <laughs> but here's what I'll do. I will show you in the Facebook group this week and do the blog where it shows you the actual, the actual tense. But when you reword it according to the tenses, it should read this way. Whoever sins is not presently seeing him or currently experiencing him. So, whoever abides in him does not sin. And if you're sinning, you're not allowing him to abide in you. Now, does that mean that he's not in there? So if you look at Ephesians 3, you see that one of the things that God wants us to do is open our heart to him so that Christ may dwell in our hearts and then bring us to a place of wholeness. That's not talking about a born-again experience. That's talking about the Spirit of God is in there and you are sometimes allowing yourself to be influenced by him. You're not always allowing that spirit that's in you to influence you. That's the idea of abiding. Jesus talks about it in John, uh, what is it, 12, 13, 14. It's like, allow that word to abide in you. We're talking about a present active tense. So you have his spirit in you, but are you presently experiencing him? Now, you know what I'm talking about. Whatever your favorite sin is, and favorite's a bad choice of word, you know, whatever you easily stumble into, anger, depression, or some external behavior, even the external behavior is rooted to some type of issue that you have in your own heart, either a trauma, an erroneous belief, a habit that you've allowed to be adopted, whatever it is. The, the external behavior is only a fruit of what's really going on, whatever the real sin is inwardly. And the sin holding on to something that's driving the behavior. And so, you know, when you get to feeling really down or upset or un, you know, tr treated unjustly or angry, that's what's going to drive those behaviors. 
That's what it's talking about. Are you abiding in Him and allowing Him to abide in you? And the real question is, what are you allowing to abide in you? Amen. So this passage here would cause you to think, if you just read it in its English tense, to think, well, gosh, if I sin, maybe I'm not saved. And it's like, no, that's not even what that author would have even meant. And it's unfortunate that we don't have better study tools to go into or it's you know, more readily taught because people don't take the time to dig out the original meaning and tenses that it's taught at face value. It's like, well, that's right there. It's what the Bible says right there. See there? I think you might not be saved. No. You obviously have not looked a little bit deeper. And, it, you know, can I just talk personally for just a moment? People that approach the Bible as an uh, academic book, right, as a book that this is, the book in and of itself is the authority. Of course, God wrote it, but it's all about the book. Yeah, God's out there somewhere. We'll meet him one day, but it's about the book. We're going to approach it from an academic perspective, and we're going to understand it and learn it as best we can. And that is our guide. That is, and, you know, it's just a very legalistic approach tend to read these kinds of verses and apply them to you in such a way that leave you feeling focused on your behavior. It's a very external, academic, you know, analytical approach. If you, have an, if, you, if you were raised in an analytical perspective of the Bible, you always questioned your salvation. You always wondered if you could really be sure in who you were in Him. You always, you, you, you didn't know, you weren't taught how to go to the Word of God and extrapolate life out of it. You extrapolate death out of it from that analytical, academic perspective. If you go to the Word of God and you feel condemned, you're using it like the law. Are you with me? Because that's what the law does. It brings condemnation. What you want to do is go to the Word, not looking for excuses to continue in sin. That's immature and ridiculous. Shall we continue in sin? No, God forbid. Why'd you come up with that? You know, that's Paul. They question him constantly about this idea. But go to it, and yes, you might get a check, and it's like, oh, boy, I really need to, I need to clean this up. I need to deal with this here. Yes, it gives you instruction. Yes, you look at it. Yes, you take it seriously. Yes, you reorganize your entire life on what this word says, especially when it deals with a specific behavior or specific attitudes. But at the end of it, it should affirm who you are in Him. Don't go to the word and walk away condemned and feel like, well, that's right. I'm just not good enough. You know, some pastors think that if they don't beat you up a little bit and step on your toes, they haven't preached a good sermon. I want to encourage you. I want to talk to who you really... See, here, I see your aura. That's what I see when I'm preaching. Not really, but I'm looking a little bit deeper. I want to see your spirit, right? Like when I'm talking to you, I want to talk to who I'm going to be talking to in heaven. I want to talk to the part of you that's one with Jesus, the part of you that has the Word of God within it. The part of you that left alone is going to follow Jesus. The part of you that God looks at and says, that I have joined myself to there. Like, like I want to talk to that part of you where God is in there, affirming to you that you are His child. Because you, you're very familiar with the other parts. You know what I mean? 
You're very familiar with the parts of you that are not that. You see it in the mirror all the time. You feel its emotions all the time. You look at its past all the time. But we're not very good at looking at that part of us that's God inside of us. And that's what he's talking about. He's addressing, you know. John is wanting to kind of press people a little bit. He's warning them about certain things, but he's trying to get to the heart of the matter. Examine yourself to see if you're in faith. Examine yourself to see if you're actually walking in brotherly love toward your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's what we're, you know, serious business, the, the task that the body of Christ has on this planet. Look at the world. Like, like we look at the world and we feel overwhelmed, but we are the solution. Amen. Christ in us is the solution. The body of Christ is the solution. That's a little scary to me. Well, it's like, oh, man, that's a big responsibility. And it is. But he's in us. And he's leading us and he's guiding us and he's shown us wisdom and he's out there working on our behalf. You know, I think if we could just kind of pop out and see his strategies and how he's moving and how he's working, we'd be like, Phew, silly me. What was I thinking? I ain't got nothing to worry about. I'm not sure what Greek tense ain't got is, but you know. I ain't got nothing to worry about, honestly. Not because he's in control and he's going to make cancer work out for my good. Not, I'm not talking about that. But from his perspective, he knows what he's doing, and he's leading, and he's guiding. And in a book like this, what he's doing is he's trying to get into your heart to get you to realize and pay attention. No, I need to, I need to clean it up a little bit in some areas. And, it, and I start with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is kind of how I ended my message, I don't know, last couple weeks ago, I guess, talking about some of the political, cultural things going on. So again, the body of Christ, and it's, we don't compromise on the things that are meaningful and that we shouldn't compromise on. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in a political season now and all the division and everything going on, we have to look at each other spiritually in Christ first and then go from there. Now, some people aren't going to do that, and that's fine. You love them as best you can. You love them as best as they'll let you love them. But I've seen a lot of walls come down from people saying, you know, kind of setting aside the voting thing, setting aside some of the cultural things, setting aside the mask issue, setting aside protests and all this stuff and kind of affirm their faith together and then talk about it. Like that's the only environment that we can actually be productive in. Otherwise, we're trying to climb our way to the top. It's like we're trying to find a solution from the bottom to the top. It's like, no, we know the solution. Now let's talk about how that solution is going to filter down into all these other areas that we're dividing ourselves up over. We know the solution. It's in us. And when we rest in that, we can then be the solution. How? You know, I don't know. We just have to follow God every day. But that's why it's important to hold love in our heart toward our brothers and sisters so we don't have, so we're not dark inside, stumbling our way around, bumping into our own issues inwardly that's blinding us from being able to look at the world through his eyes. I look at the future and I have nothing but hope, honestly. I mean, you know, whatever the end looks like, it's like, praise God, here it comes. Amen. Let's keep going because we know what's on the other side, right? I mean, seriously, I might 
shaking my boots over certain circumstances, maybe, but it's like, you know what? Why be afraid? There's nothing to be afraid. Our love for one another. I appreciate the word that you brought, David, and I, I hear more people talking about it, and I pray that you take the time to yield your heart to the Lord and ask, am I, am I you know, I had an exercise in here but it's like, if you, so what does love look like? Go to 1 Corinthians 13, and when it says love is patient, love is kind, you can say God is patient, God is kind, and God is in you. You can say I am patient, I am kind, I am long-suffering. I tend to believe the best about others. Amen. And, and, and affirm it to yourself who you are. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. And thank you to those of you who support Forward Ministries financially. You truly are changing the way the world sees God. You're helping people detox from performance-based religion and experience God's love for them. We're committed to helping you renew your mind so you'll experience transformation and move forward in every area of your life. I pray you're making this hard journey. Visit my website at clintbyers.com for hundreds of free teachings and articles that will empower you to renew your mind and put on your eternal identity in Christ. I'm especially excited about my tools for transformation that have original music and modern technology designed to help you slow down and connect with the Spirit of God in your heart. I'd like to invite you to partner with Forward Ministries. Help us continue to spread the gospel and develop resources that are empowering people to grow in their identity in Christ. Thank you again for joining me. I pray God's blessings and promises over you and your family today.